0: so this is the first edition of uh, <laughs> the podcast that's not titled dog talks to some douche what is it titled i have no idea right um, okay well this will be interesting um best worst podcast no best worst podcast <laughs> that's actually not a bad idea yeah, best yeah. worst podcast because i think we're both interested in um what well, goes for that whole um, circle of circle of quality, quality um, yeah. which we can maybe talk about later but you know one of the reasons i thought we'd be two good people to talk about stuff is that we both are Fond of really good cinema and really bad <laughs> cinema, and not really concerned about the traditional line between that. Both of us love b- things in both those camps.
1: Yeah, yeah. I th- and I think from talking with you about your sort of almost, I think you're you're almost more polarized than I am. I, I think I'm quite eclectic in my tastes. I, I sort of range right across. I love some examples of really slow cinema and really thoughtful um, cinema that. You know, a lot of people wouldn't go near, um, and I love the trash stuff I do. I mean, I've I grew up loving that stuff, uh, watching it on VHS all that kind of thing. But I also really like a lot of the stuff in the middle that maybe wouldn't appeal to you so much.
0: What I like, and what to me, what's important in cinema is um, there's a great quote from Orpheus, which I always use, the Jean Cocteau film, mm-hmm. um, and I, somebody says in a cafe, "What do you want from cinema?" And he says, "Astonish me." And it just—I just love that feeling of coming out of a movie, seeing something that you've never seen before that blows your mind, and that can be something that's very poetic and sublime, or just something so staggeringly, mind-bogglingly dumb that you can't even imagine how anyone could have thought to make. Yeah, Troll Two is yeah, you yeah. Know, the, the best, worst uh, example uh, that comes to mind, and um, you know, I mean, I, I appreciate competent filmmaking but if it's a choice of watching something that's safe and okay or something that takes some chances and on the whole isn't really that good of a film but is really remarkable for the mistakes that it makes yeah i'd much rather watch the latter even though yeah. i couldn't necessarily recommend it to other people
1: yeah i i agree with that and I, I would go there as well um although i think i also have i oh, I'm almost a it's slightly embarrassed talking in this terms but I have quite a sentimental side as well I think and so there are things that maybe spark something from my childhood that appeal to me even though I know objectively it's pretty average cinema but for whatever reason there's a certain aspect to it that that, that triggers something in my memory or, or, or a sense that makes it appeal to me like what kind of films are you talking about oh let me think one that was a long time ago and I probably still wouldn't like it now but it's awful is um, Far and Away the Tom Cruise Nicole the Tom Cruise Nicole Kidman. No. Terrible, terrible <laughs> accents, terrible story, but there was something at the time, well, even further on from when it was made, that triggered something about my childhood, I think, and I'm not sure what it was. Obviously nothing to do with being a kid that grew up in island in the potato field. <laughs> <laughs> one,
0: one thing I've noticed that I'm different from a lot of um, people about is that I didn't actually get into cinema... Like in a really serious way till um, my early 20s. Um, and like all through university, for instance, I was really all about music and I was working at the radio station and playing in bands and stuff. And I mean, I went to movies, you know, but that was kind of it. And then, you know, I went to a school that had a cinema department, a university wow. that had a cinema department, right. and I never took a single course. They had a, um, f- there were four years of retrospective screenings, and it wasn't until second semester, senior year, that somebody started dragging me to them, and it was like, started being this gradual eye-opening of, oh, wait, there's this whole world out there that yeah. I didn't know about. And I think because of that, you know, I don't necessarily have the deep sentiment. I mean, I love Gremlins, you know? I mean, <laughs> yeah, and, yeah, I, yeah. you know, and, there, and there's there's certain films from my childhood. Um, but they tend to be the ones that stand up now. I mean, if you go come sit down and watch Gremlins, it still stands yeah. up. The Karate Kid. Yeah. I'm telling I you. haven't watched The Karate Kid. The original episode.
1: Karate Kid. Stand, oh, I, I saw it back oh, in dude, the day. Man. i watch it probably annually right (laughs) (laughs) I mean I still quote wax on wax off
0: so I mean it's it's made an impression it it did
1: I think in terms of uh, popular culture anyway uh, made a a big impression I mean it's by no means uh, a life-changing piece of cinema but I think it does have some themes which are recognisable and were explored in an interesting enough way And, and, uh, and I guess a genre crossover at a time where that stuff hadn't really crossed over that much like mm-hmm. I spent a lot of my childhood watching um dubbed imported kung fu films from China that my um uh, Fijian Indian friend's brother got in from who knows where. I was watching Short Circuit <laughs> <laughs> As well as, you know, watching Short Circuit and what have you. But we used to just watch a lot of video and, and that's some of the stuff we watched and so to see kind of, some of like some of the martial arts stuff become mainstream but then sort of put a coming of age boy meets girl story cheesy as it might have been over it i mean even like um if you look at the karate kid as an example it's it's closer to two hours than 90 minutes which is quite an odd thing for an 80s film which are you know kind of classic box formula 85 to 90 minutes um, and when you get much past that you are usually looking at something slightly more interesting i think
0: Right. Well, maybe we'll have to watch The Karate Kid for yeah, one man. of these. Cause, um, <laughs> I mean, I, I mean overall, I kind of have a philosophy. We go back to all these genre movies from the past, and we discover all these things that we didn't know were there. And people, you know, probably mostly rightly, will be like, oh, you know, there's a string of street dancing movies. Or, yeah, yeah. Or, you know, whatever the trend is. I mean, superheroes are obviously the dominant thing right now. Yeah. But um, the interesting thing will be as that stuff settles down that, you know, I'm not the guy that feels like going to every single street dancing movie. No. But there'll be somebody that goes in and says, you know what, actually, that one was pretty special. And there, yeah, there'll yeah. be something about it. There'll be one or two know. that
1: sort of stick out.
0: I think, as, and probably what we're getting at more in general with this, as a filmgoer, you know, there is so much out there that you just make these big filter decisions. Yeah. And that's, um, in some ways, I'm kind of envious of the people, and maybe this brings it around to the festival, that when the festival goes around, they're like, Oh, you know, I'm only going to see the incredibly strange films, or I'm only going to see slow cinema, yeah. or, or I'm only going to see the big nights, or the animation, or you know, it's kind of like
1: They're they so they blinking. have
0: those things, and yeah. and it kind of schedules to it, and so when you know you have Take Shelter playing against Hobo with a Shotgun, you know most nor or Oki's movie playing against Kill List, I don't know that that one's happening. But, you know, those kind of things that, you know, I feel like I'm one of the five people that's, like, really...
1: Oh, what are going to (laughs) do? Yeah, Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) exactly. Which Um, one do I have to drop?
0: (laughs) And, um, I mean, I'm looking at your spreadsheet right now, and maybe you want to speak to that, but it's a stressful time of year for us, isn't it?
1: Yes, very much so. Uh, Trying to schedule the film festival is a mission and a half, and I, I find it particularly difficult because... I usually have to, I I do some film reviewing for a bunch of different groups and I have to get requests, uh, review requests in, I don't know, you know, less than a week after getting the program. And so you essentially have to go through everything Mm -hmm. with as fine a tooth comb as you can in that time. And I'm a slow reader. Most of my friends that sort of do the stuff read a lot faster than I do. So I'm up late trying (laughs) desperately to get through it. And then I finally finished the book and I have rated the films to my sort of liking and then I have to schedule it and it... It hurts. Because <laughs> <laughs> you get the, yeah. Like I said, you have an initial cut. I have an initial cut this year of 87. 87 <laughs> films I, I need to see. And then clearly I can't see 87 films because I wouldn't be able to afford to see... The amount that I wouldn't get review tickets for, um, and I certainly couldn't write about that many films if I did get review tickets for them all. in that time, um, and I have a block of times that I can't make for family commitments and what have you. Mm. Um, so I usually don't go to the theatre between five thirty and eight or whatever seven thirty, um, just because that's time with kids and what have you, mm. um, which cuts out a whole chunk of possible. In fact, for some films, that cuts out altogether. All um, just depending on when they've been, yeah, when they've been scheduled, yeah, when they've been scheduled, and there's maybe one or two opportun- one or two th- times when I might just go. I'll stay through all night and do a five or six film day, but yeah, yeah.
0: it makes it difficult. It's um, it's a topic that probably appeals to you <coughs> and me and like five other people. people. <laughs> but, um, it's interesting that you say, oh, I have to go through the book because I kind of have the feeling that you as do I, you know, are keeping up on all these things through the year and we're watching what comes out at yeah. Sundance, what comes out at Cannes, what yeah. comes out at these other things. And then there's these other set of directors um, that we follow. And yeah. so usually I feel like I already know, like on a first glance to the book and double-checking the director's names, yeah, yeah. Um, 80% of the films that I want to see. So it's more like, you know, I kind of block in the schedule and then I kind of look at the spaces of what's left and then say, oh, well... You know, if I fit all of those in, and then I kind of go through the book, and then I discover the things that I missed, I'm like, oh wait, I actually really need to see that, but I've already blocked that, and then it becomes this complex triage operation. And um, I I have fantasies of some kind of Android -er (laughs) app that you can you know plug in like you've you've got your levels here, one, two, and three, and stuff like that, that you could plug in the film names and your available times in one, two, and three, and it would magically generated optimal <laughs> schedule. Um, I can't imagine that there is a lot of profit to be made in such an enterprise. But, um, shall we... Um, shall we move on
1: with this stuff? Yeah, yeah. yeah,
0: yeah. Um,
1: you've got um, a what, list of what, films what, that
0: you're excited about. I've got a list of films that I'm excited do, about. Right? Some
1: of them same. What sure. was your kind of general feel for the overall program this year? Uh, Good program? I, I think they've outdone programs um, Average
0: program? I, I think it's an above-average program. I think it... Yeah, so I why. think that... For people who aren't in the fast circuit so much, it may not be immediately present as many exciting things. Like, um, for, and for people who haven't seen films like Dog Tooth or House of the Devil or uh, yeah. um, have those kind of <laughs> things, and we'll talk about why those films matter as it yeah. goes on. Or Tale of Two Sisters, or you know, I, I mean, I think of marquee films from previous years like yeah. you know In the Loop or um, you know the and, one
1: with uh, Angelina Jolie as the wife of the the journalist that got killed, Daniel, Pearl or whatever.
0: Yeah, stuff I, like that. Big I, names. I feel like, by and large, I mean there there is kind of um, the the kind of conventional art house films that usually get distribution here that I kind of pejoratively refer to as um, people drinking tea in the countryside during World War Two. Yeah. Um and um I do feel like a lot of the French films went that way this year and I would have loved to see like say um the new Bruno Dumont film in place of yeah. um any two of um those films, but I'm, I'm a realist, you know, I mean, and, and the fil- festival has to appeal to all people and there is an audience of, um, older cinema goers who do like, you know, very, you know, pleasant, the conversations with my gardener. Yeah, yeah. yeah the, these, Which was a good film. actually. Was I it? I that. never saw it. I, yeah, I, I, yeah. I, I kind of, which is funny because I kind of use that as a, um, I'm uh, <laughs> unfairly perhaps I'll, I'll need to go back and watch that. I, I enjoyed um, it. I thought I found it had a kind of a, a lyrical quality to it. I
1: thought, yeah.
0: Yeah. I, I, I suspect it's one of those films that if I sat down. But it is of that set you're talking it, about. Yeah. Yeah. And it is, um, I do feel like, um, that things get perceived as art house when, that are really actually like, there is kind of, a, it's just a different
1: Foreign. demographic
0: that is as commercially minded in its own sense and is formulaic and you know there's there's nothing wrong with an excellent execution
1: of a reliable formula you yeah. know what I mean and I, I, well I, formula I'm, genre yeah. films that are simply foreign the same film made in America that would be completely mainstream um, yes but, and, and there is some interest to that to see how other film industries do mainstream cinema but uh, for instance, an example from a couple of years ago was um, the Audrey Tattoo film, or how we you pronounce her name, uh, Priceless. I wonder how many foreign names were but- butchered during this Yeah, yeah. <laughs>
0: but Priceless is one I skipped because of yeah. that very reason. And it had a long, successful run here in art houses, if I'm not mistaken.
1: I uh, Probably. And yeah. um, she's as gorgeous as ever. But the film was terribly average.
0: Did you see uh, 36k Day RFF? Uh, no. um, it was. Um, think it might have been Daniel O'Tale I forget who but it was a it was a French crime thriller He said everything it was oh, yeah, <laughs> Touché, yeah. He's, he'll probably be in half the films yeah. we talk about but um, it had um, a sub Michael Mann kind of police um, thriller and yeah. I mean I really esteem Michael Mann so I don't mean that yeah. as a bash at all but you know it's if it was it with Americans talking in American accents it never would have showed up yeah at the film festival conversely you know I mean you have to say well because it's in French with English subtitles, it's never going to get a run at yeah. Queen Street or St. Luke's. Yeah. So you you can't really bash too much. No, on because that it's decision. an opportunity for you people know. to see cinema that they wouldn't otherwise get a chance to see. So yeah, yeah. and and whether that means you're a six year old getting to see an animated <coughs> film, a twenty five year old getting to see what looks like an utterly mainstream sci-fi film uh, with the Aerosmith soundtrack that happens to be in Japanese um, Space Battleship Yamato or um, you know a 55 year old getting to see you know a French, a touching French film. Yeah. Um, there's something for all those audiences and I, I you know, I, the fact is that there's way too much that I want to see yeah. without those films. If they program more stuff i want to see, I'd just be tearing my
1: hair out even more than I already am with the schedule. But going back to where we first started with that is that we both think this is a above average year. And, Definitely. And, and I, yeah, I think for me, last year was a little bit of a low point, I think, in the program. Not that there wasn't great films there, but I didn't Reading the program over, I wasn't as excited as I had been in other years. Usually, I think I find that there's one or two films every year that I read about that really kind of wig me out, and I go, oh, my goodness. Or I just, and they're usually things I've never heard of, uh, and I don't know the director, and it's just like there's those left-field finds. Um, and I've got a couple of classic examples from pre- uh, festivals past that have sort of done that for me, and the classic one for me is um, The Beaver Trilogy which played the one. yeah that was before my time at the festival and it was it's it's a trippy film that never got released because of music licensing issues it's a, a weirdo piece of documentary stuff shot by the director trent harris uh in the late 70s um which he subsequently which has got no narrative to it whatsoever it's just a young kid who likes who turns up at a tv station wants to be on camera and is visiting interesting personality um, does impersonations, does it for camera, and then writes a letter to him and says, "Come to my small town called Beaver in Utah. Uh, we have a, and I'll organise a talent quest. You can come and film it. it would be great. We can put it on some TV show. Um, and it's awful. It's just small town <laughs> talent quest. For me, um, I, I come from somewhere. I have a like a." a, a youth group church background as part of my background and um, it was like a bad youth group talent quest competition it was so bad and he goes and films it and, <laughs> and he knows it's bad but he's just kind of going this is going to be kind of like just car crash gold which is like it, documentary is. filmmaking yeah. these days and it is uh, but it only turned out to be like 20 minutes or something he came back to it a couple of years later for whatever reason I, I have no idea remade it almost word for word take for take with Sean Penn a young hand, right, okay. as the, the Beaver Kid, um, well, Grooving Gary, as his name was. Um, so, and, is this
0: like a um, Gus Van Sant psycho kind of shot for shot remake kind of thing? Or I I
1: haven't seen the Gus Van Sant remake, uh, but it was a remake almost exactly the same, but with a slight twist on it to kind of give a sense because his big his big uh, impersonation act at the talent quest is that he does Olivia Newton John or he calls himself Olivia Newton Don. And so he's in drag Olivia Newton John singing, Please Don't Keep Me Waiting. And Which it, this would be the music clearance issue. Yeah, yeah. and <laughs> it's
0: terrible.
1: It's so bad, but so good so bad. And then, yeah, does that and puts a slight twist on it to make it look like he's maybe a repressed transvestite in small-town America in the 70s, just trying to sort of in some way break out of his confines, social confines, um, by doing this talent quest. Remakes it again, I think, in 84, maybe, with a very young Crispin Glover <laughs> in the lead role. And this time it's less of a kind of just random short and more of a, an actual cohesive short film where he bookends it with a tropper a intro-outro, keeps the main elements of the story going, but makes it a full-on story of a repressed young transvestite in a small town who um just finds his escape from that place
0: so was it the um was it because i want to bring it back to the festival a bit and discoveries was it the description in the booklet that you said i've got to see that or was it one of those that you're kind of more like
1: oh that sounds interesting i think i'll take a flyer on that and then it just blew you away description of the booklet was just that sounds totally weird i think that will appeal to me just the oddness of it right um I turned up in the cinema, me and my friend Nigel, and uh, there can't have been more than like 10 or 15 people in the the cinema area, and it was one of the Queen Street ones. Um, And it was just, like, I thought it was going to be pretty interesting, and it was awesome. Just ridiculously mind blowingly odd and weird and cool, yeah. And so that year, like there was a few things like that, and following year there was a one called an American astronaut, which I really loved as well um, had another, another left field one which I really loved um, this year there probably aren't quite so many or there isn't anything so unknown to me like that, but it's probably because I'm reading more and more exposed to what's coming out one on that kind of level would might be Attenberg. yeah um and that's which actually points to um
0: maybe talk a bit, little bit about the fact that um, one of the reasons both of us are excited about Adamberg is that the filmmaker was involved with a film called Dog, Dog Tooth, to- which played two years ago was that 2009? Yes. And um, that what was it last year? No. No, I think no, it was 2009 because yeah. uh, it just played Con. That's Not right. many people had heard of it. Mike D'Angelo gave, had given yeah, a really it Yeah, it the
1: first, great, uh, first um, uh, great film to get an award it can or selected or whatever for 30 years or something yeah yeah and um, it could have played
0: incredibly strange and might have been more at home there yeah. maybe I, I think that um,
1: caused a few issues with uh, some of the audience uh, I had lots of walkouts in my session yeah we had and, plenty of walkouts as well um, and we, so, we may have been at the same session I don't and even on know. the, the yeah. Lumiere review there was lots of vitriol <laughs> in the comments yeah. section
0: Dogtooth is an incredibly uncomfortable film on every level not just in terms of confrontational content, off-kilter pacing, but even the framing of it, it's yeah. framed in such a way. I mean, the the setup basically is it's about a family who's decided that um, to protect their children, they're going to keep them living at home and at, not exposed to the outside world to the point where they teach them um, different vocabulary words yeah. for even basic things so that they think the phone is a salt shaker. Yeah. So if they hear someone talking about that um and so it picks up when they're in their early, kids are, early, early, early 20s? 20s yeah yeah, yeah. It's, it's but it's they're so regressed and so there's a whole allegorical <coughs> element to it and um it's something i'll probably come back to a couple times that i'm quite really enamored there's been a couple films um that really play with this mix of kind of what could be a realistic <coughs> milieu um but then going into quite surreal
1: yeah takes on it it's, are, it's surreal and it's a kind of a cinema of unease that is at the same time i mean it's it's a black comedy there's a light and serious mm. aspect to a very dark film yeah um, which I think people couldn't cope with because like you don't, the people who loved it yeah. were laughing their heads off going this is just bizarre and it, it what I, one of the things I really liked about it was the uh, was the the kind of the continual but not sudden kind of gradual shift in tone like the, or you could say the genre changed yeah. maybe four times throughout the film. Well, even moment by moment.
0: I mean, you say you say you're laughing, and I mean, I, I remember laughing, but I remember really visceral yeah, horror. Yeah. I mean, well, video cassette recorder yeah, uh, without yeah. getting any more yeah, yeah. details, and um, and other just moments, and even people who have been largely desensitized yeah. will come away with scarring yeah. moments from it amidst incredibly yeah, become funny moments, and it is it is just like you know what is your overall reaction to this and then I thought wow that's an amazing film and it's going to fade away and interestingly it has had this amazing life that people have been so passionate about seized onto it and somehow it even got an academy award nomination for best foreign film in the oscars and
1: a which, local dvd release
0: yeah um, which which I it's actually it's, who would have thought yeah um, and so if you want to prepare yourself for edinburgh I'd say Watch, check it out yeah don't yeah. Poof, for sure um, that, that's it's an 18 yeah
1: be aware <laughs> not for one watching when you've got uh, kids about yeah i mean you have that
0: problem i don't <laughs> that'll be which might be an interesting tension to talk about but um yeah i think adenberg is from what i understand how, do you know how the director was involved with the production of, uh, of
1: Dogtooth? sorry i can't remember how she was involved but i know the director for dog Tooth is an actor in this one she might have been a producer on Dogtooth, I think. Right, and
0: that that's an interesting dynamic that yeah. I, think,
1: um, more, together, I think is happening a lot more, is that static, um, you get together. these
0: groups of people, and I mean, I worked on my own film with, you know, a group of people that, you know, we try to support each other, and um, so one person makes the film, and um, I'll talk about this more in another film later, but, and then the other person makes their film, and so they'll be their own take on things, and by all accounts, Annenberg's a bit gentler of a film. It'd be difficult to be less gentle than Dogtooth, yeah. <laughs> but I think, I think it is a bit more... Um, accessible. It still has that bit of surreal, unexpected, yeah. off kilter approach to realism.
1: Yeah. Uh, well, I that think that's, a, I really that's one things that cinema. makes that makes Dogtooth as hard as it is. It will probably be similar with um, with Attenberg, is that a lot of the stuff that plays in the strange section is so obviously fantasy or far fetched, and it, and it might be uh, violence just over the top or I mean, probably more visceral than, than the average Hollywood offering, um, yeah. but Dogtooth, it could be a real situation.
0: And yeah, in yeah. fact, to a
1: certain point, you kind of think this is mirroring some situations you've heard of in media stories, um, And but then he sort of takes it further and turns it to something even sicker and, and more odd. Mm-hmm um but but, but but it's like right, never loses part,
0: a piece of reality it, it yeah. could happen even though we know it yeah. won't and and that's probably but at the same time it's only because the specifics are so um authorial and like yeah, of yeah. like you know it, there is an artistic edge to it that it's like oh it wouldn't be like that in real life but it could it could potentially be not far off from yeah that. yeah and that's that's what makes it consistently unsettling yeah um Um, Speaking of consistently unsettling, I might jump to um, one that's not on your list, which is um, I Saw the Devil. Um, And speaking of also violence and bloodline, um, I'm really looking forward to this film and I'm really dreading this film. Um, Every year there's um, a film that I know... I'm going to have a hard time sitting through. Okay, refresh um, me. Just, like, okay, so, really yeah, quick. fair enough. Kim Ji-Woon is the director of Tale of Two Sisters, oh, yeah. um, which is one of my favorite horror films of all time. As a Korean director. Yeah. Um, since then, he's done A Bittersweet Life, which uh, yeah. is yeah. a um, you yeah, know, no, kind no. of gangway thriller. Yeah. And uh, The Good, The Bad, The Weird, which missed okay. the festival but had a limited cinema release here yeah. and is very revisionist take on the Western. Yeah. Um, he's... he's one of the best kinetic stylists working. Um, Tale of Two Sisters also shows him working in a much slower milieu. And um, I Saw the Devil as his revenge film. And um, it is a film that met with great challenge with the censors in Korea. Oh, yeah. And we're talking about a national cinema that's the aisle, old boy, sympathy for Mr. Vengeance. Vengeance. And we're talking about a film that was too extreme for that. Yeah. And we're talking about somebody who's an absolute cinema master. And the thing is there's lots of I think you sort of alluded to this before some of this genre cinema. Yeah. If there's an element that you know and going in it's fake, you can almost watch anything and and you're not really relating to the characters as humans and so it doesn't matter the level of indignities that they're going through it doesn't matter and in fact you revel in it i mean that's part of the joy of incredibly you know going to watch lady terminator and watching (laughs) you know people's heads being blown off or whatever is like enjoying it in the same way that you would be on set if you were watching like these crazy effects go off yeah yeah. that's so much fun um i suspect that what i saw the devil will do is really challenge that sense of joy that kind of goes across the whole revenge film genre yeah, from, yeah. you know, Kill Bills would probably be the most recent sort of example and just um, really challenge that in a really artful way. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I'm, I'm, and it's 142 minutes, so it's yeah, like yeah. you don't even have the, the uh, joy of a uh, short running time. I'm not sure that I'm convincing anybody why I want to see
1: this film. <laughs> no, um, no, I, 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 it did look very interesting and I did like his previous work. Uh for me it was I think one of the last two that got knocked off the list because of scheduling. Mm. Um it wasn't on my must see, but it was kind of the next step down and I just I just couldn't fit it in.
0: Yeah. Um, I think I think we're probably both similar in that um not necessarily in terms of the individual directors, but that there are directors, yeah, that we just need to see the next thing yeah, well, that they yeah. do and that and there's other directors that I'll talk about later that are like that. Um and so, and for me, Kim Ji Woon is one of oh, yeah. those directors. Possibly after Bong Joon Ho, my oh, yeah. yeah, I'd say he's probably my second favorite director coming out of Korea right now. For those who her, don't
1: know, yeah. Bong Joon Ho, the host, yeah, uh, the
0: host, Memories of Murder, don't, Mother, Mother, yeah. um, There's I another haven't
1: seen career, Mother.
0: You haven't seen Mother. I need to. I know I need to. Yeah, yeah. I just well, haven't got around to it. Maybe um, in the future we can do a podcast of uh, yeah. things that we've missed from various ones. Yeah, you, know, yeah.
1: I, you can watch Mother, I can watch The Karate I Kid. It was one of those ones <laughs> I meant to see, yeah. and now i bang my head against the wall, but I'm obviously it's not my head enough to actually get around to it. It was, um, I forget which year
0: it played festival. it may have been 2009, but it was a yeah. stunning, um, <coughs> stunning film. I mean, for me, he's... I saw Memories of Murder, and this is something I mentioned. was going to mention before, um, often I go to see films at the festival, kind of not sure what I'm getting myself into, but with it, just read the book, and I'm like, oh, that could be interesting, and it's at a time where I'm not seeing anything else, and I, it works that, you know, I've got a film after a film before, yeah. so I'll check it out. Um 1208 East of Bucharest was one of those films. Ah, excellent! Um, so an amazing film. Um, Longing, which is a German film, which never came back. I or it might have played at the Film Society, but um, uh, yeah, I don't know. Um, it it's it's not much. It doesn't sound like much from the description, um, and I it's it's a film that I don't even want to talk about very much because it it sounds so kind of cliche in its <laughs> description, but it, it just it just transcends everything about that sort of booklet-level description. I think yeah. that's one of the things that always frustrates me looking at the booklet. Um, you know, there's these things that jump out at you, but it's those things that kind of sound like, oh, there might be something there, <laughs> that, you know? And it's it's always like, you know, there's always going to be one that got away. Like last year, oh, yeah. I, I was fortunate that I had some money cashed up and I wasn't <coughs> working, and I saw 56 films. And um, multiple of my friends... Said the best film they saw was Cell Two One One, which I missed, yeah. and I just caught up with it this weekend. It's a fantastic film. It might have, it wouldn't have transcended certified copy, but it would have easily made my top ten for last yeah, year's yeah. festival. And so there is that element of you know you'll see films that I don't, I see, I'll see films yeah. that you
1: don't, and we'll both. But
0: that's part of the part of the interesting <laughs> sort of
1: experience of having friends that uh, that do the festival on masse.
0: There is this small group, and hopefully it can become a larger group of um, people that really care about art film and. new zealand and about being able to see this stuff all year and um for me almost one of the main reasons of doing this is to kind of generate that passion about the same films that we're passionate about because you know i think you know i mean we both came from places where it's like you know i wasn't watching bergman when i was eight years old you know it's like you know i wasn't raised on this i came i came to it late and discovered it's like oh you know this is great and this is great and this is great and um and it's a slow thing and you, you suddenly get into it and then you start talking about, oh well you know. Everyone seen dog tooth, of course. You know don't <laughs> know <laughs> how deep have we got in. Um but you know it's a slippery slope and I encourage people to slip down it with us. Yeah, yeah, um, for sure. So what, what would you like to slip into next?
1: Okay, let's uh let's have a look at uh Kid with the bike—that's one that uh, you're interested in. Uh, you're not interested in particularly. Well, oh, well, it's not on your top. Well, not on your top ten. Do and, you and want to talk about it first, or should I talk about it first? The Darden brothers. Darden um. brothers. Okay, I discovered Rosetta late, not at the cinema, uh, on VHS uh, via a friend who worked at a video store, and uh, said that you need to watch this film, completely unspoiled, and and I and I love verite kind of cinema. Um, which the Dardens do. Very kind of uh, small-scale, gritty human drama, finding kind of the the tension in the everyday uh, handheld cameras, um, non-professional actors, all that kind of stuff. And this is their latest offering. Yeah, so started for me with Rosetta, and then I went to pretty much everything that appeared after that, uh, The Sun, The Child. Actually, I caught up with The Sun in retrospect, but I did The Child and Lawn of Silence. And then I caught up with La Promesse, the earlier one. And this is their latest one, uh, which I've heard reasonable things about. I haven't looked closely at it, but, uh, you know, they've got a reputation now for my money, not for yours. Uh, they haven't had a misstep. Well, not everything's at the same level.
0: Let, let, let me tell you more about my position, and then you can argue it. And yeah. I think they're incredibly talented. Um, I particularly, I do like The Sun quite a bit. I think it's a yeah. very good film. And... I guess I would probably say at a certain level, I think all their films that I've seen, I, I haven't seen Rosetta and I haven't seen Lord in the Silence, but I ha- have seen the other ones, and I don't think I can fault them at what they do. Yeah. I think my problem, if it you can call it a problem, really, it more has to do with kind of the social realism kind of approach. It is very, you know, and it's something that sums back, you know, I mean, you can point to the bicycle thief and all of that. And yeah. I, I can't be bothered to sit through The Bicycle Thief again either. And, and, and that's that's treasonous to say. It's a masterwork of cinema. And, and I understand all the things that people value in it and respect it. But um, I do find myself drawn more towards the anti-realism of oh, films yeah. like Dogville. Uh, not Dogville, excuse me. Dog Tooth or um, Certified Copy um, which, you know, takes what could be a realistic situation and then kind of... Excuse yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. And... and uh, you know, if I had unlimited time and if I had, you know, <coughs> 60 films to see, it would make the list because yeah. I do like keeping up with valued directors. Um, but it's kind of, I guess, suppose it's the converse of Kim jong Won. You said something that's like, yeah. oh, it's the latest from that I don't know about. It's like, you know, it's another installment. And Yeah, to a degree it's more of the same. Yeah, um, and, and
1: that, that's great, you know. I mean, I think, like... And some of them stand out more than others, like The Sun. Yeah. Rosetta yeah for sure I yeah. oh, actually like um, probably for me The Child was a little less so Lord of Silence was a bit of a change I think um, I haven't it's not it, completely different yeah. but it's it's not yeah they've they've
0: branched out slightly in terms of the way that they approached I haven't seen Lorna of Silence mm-hmm. and I actually have it sitting in here on DVD so I don't have an excuse so I'll take a look at Lorna of Silence and if it hits me maybe I'll go see it and um but um I do I do think that um for people who are interested I mean they're incredibly influential filmmakers yeah. which is something that gets overlooked um, Darren Aronofsky for instance um, really has in his last two films The Wrestler and Black Swan I know that um, the Dardenne films have been major influences on that style of photography I haven't
1: managed to get through Black Swan didn't appeal um, to me at all I watched bits of that and really didn't like it I quite enjoyed The Wrestler I certainly preferred the wrestler to Black Swan. Although I think I
0: now that I know what the Black Swan's about, I'll probably give it a second watch. Um, I saw it in the theater. Oh, yeah. The first time I saw it, um, I was distracted by the fact that everybody had talked about a twist in it. But the thing is, like both those films, really take. Um, uh, there's a there's a favorite story that a critic of a friend of mine likes to tell about um, The Sun where he saw it and about halfway through this guy got up in the theater and yelled really loud I'm sick of looking at that guy's fucking neck and walked (laughs) out and and, you know it is that um, it's not point of view because it's behind the character but it is that following the character thing and that And that's something that um, Aronofsky adapted, I think, really successfully in The Wrestler. So yeah, so I bring up The Wrestler mainly because um, I think they're very influential directors. I think they're important directors. And I really would not want to dissuade anyone who thinks that the kid with the bike looks interesting to them from seeing it. I would go
1: further. I would say if you're new to festival cinema and you want to expand your cinema watching and you're at all interested in social realist cinema, so realistic kind of cinema about social situations and and small scale rather than your big Hollywood epics, um, then you should probably prioritise this film because you should see a Dardenne film because they are the masters of this genre, I guess.
0: Yeah, I think that's... if, If understanding
1: the major names in cinema is something that's important to you and I think it it certainly is to both of us yeah well I I think it's to a degree it's it's almost I mean it doesn't have to be but it's 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 a it's kind of a starting point or a kind of a foundational point from which you can then you don't have to you can sort of start wherever you like really but I think if you want to have a broad kind of sense of cinema kind of having at least one touch point in a lot of the key sort of places or or, or aspects of mm-hmm. cinema and filmmaking um, that are kind of acknowledged masters or you know leaders in that field not necessarily pushing bounds all the time um, then I think it pays to have that as a touch point because then when you look at find other stuff that is so far out there you could you can sometimes reference that back to something else that yeah makes more sense i don't know yeah no i'm like when i first got
0: into cinema which is you know i actually had a um...
1: and i like your your whole sort of circle of quality thing.
0: should i explain the circle of quality yeah, yeah. right now because we discussed this before um the microphone rolled a friend of mine uh introduced me to this concept at a radio station so he presented in the context of music where um you imagine at the very top Um, you imagine normally a spectrum of a line going from top to bottom. And so at the top, you imagine um, people who are unparalleled masters of technique and in their form using that to communicate at the height of their powers. And so in music, that would be people like, you know, be it Bach or John Coltrane or so on. And um, as you go down in skill, um, you may still have a level of competency, but the actual ability to, communicate anything meaningful uh, just sort of disappears a bit. And you get to, you know, the absolute mediocrity, the music that isn't really music that you hear in the background at um, shopping malls. I believe I referred to this as the Nickelback Nadir. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, before. It can't be faulted on any technical level, but um, at least for my years, there's no reason to listen to it. And then the music gets worse again, but as it gets worse and sloppier, um, paradoxically, it gets—or perhaps not paradoxically—but it gets better, and um, I'm, I realize I'm relying on drawing the circle in space, which you can't see because <laughs> this is audio. But you start—you start awesome. You start going back up to the top of the circle, and um, you know I. I Refer to bands like The Stooges, for instance, as a band. You know, Enjoy the business, um, yes. yeah, yeah, Ramones and The Fall. The Fall is a great example, actually. Yeah. Um, and then but, like I think I brought in Daniel Johnston. Yeah, Daniel Johnston's another good example of people whose you know grasp of technique doesn't even deserve the term rudimentary. But um, probably, if you gave them five years of music lessons, it would only do harm to what they yeah. do because um, they
1: communicate honesty and passion.
0: Yeah. And and so there is, for me, at that point, at the top of the circle of quality, um, is the stuff I enjoy most, the best and the worst. And, you know, in cinema, that's the um, place where 2001 A Space Odyssey meets Troll 2 for me, you know, to choose you know, to my best and worst, or, you know, yeah. you can pick Lady, Lady Terminator and, um, <laughs> I don't know, um, uh. I'm sure I like other films besides 2001. <laughs> <laughs> a certified copy, let's say, which yeah. is, you know, a certified copy you couldn't get any more cinema of quality about, but it's also a complete masterwork for me. Um, in terms of names that um, you need to know and be familiar with and, and touchstones, I mean, there's a couple people we could go to. There are a lot of people on um, like this festival represented. Yeah, one, one that I think we both agree on that maybe we'll talk about a little bit is... Um, uh, actually, I think at the moment one of the only documentary picks I have is uh, Errol Morris. Yeah. Um, who. Tabloid is his film with this pit uh, Yes. Title. And um, I know very little about Tabloid and I really don't want to know more. What you need to know is that Errol Morris is the most influential and one of the most important documentary makers working today. Yeah. Certainly. Um, and um, this is a line of. I mean, you may have heard of Fog of War. Thin Blue Line. Yeah, Fast, Cheap, and Out of Control is not as well known, but is one of my personal favorites. Um,
1: More recently, uh, Standard Operating Procedure.
0: Yeah, um, and um, Standard Operating Procedure in particular is quite a dark film. Yeah. and um, I think one thing that <coughs> maybe often gets overlooked, in you know, it, people who look at Errol Morris's career in Thin Blue Line and and that is his kind of a sense of humor. And um, you look at Vernon, Florida, for instance, one of his earliest yeah, films, yeah. which is is much more rough around the edges than his later work. But um, there's a dry, dispassionate, but um, a very observational sense of humor about it. And, um, and uh, tabloid is getting into much more salacious material. Yeah. Um, and uh, I think one thing that's often overlooked is actually his first-person series. Have you seen that? Yeah, I I think I've seen all of it, actually. Yeah. yeah. Um, and um, Which is pretty cool. Yeah, basically, um, a lot of Errol Morris depends on first-person witness, and he uses something yeah.
1: called an yeah. which has five or six cameras pointed at the subject. So he, he doesn't look directly at the people. In fact, he I don't think he's in the same room most of the time. They've got... They're seeing each other through camera screens, yeah. Uh, through uh, through viewing screens, which essentially sit directly behind the camera, so they're looking straight down the barrel of the camera, talking yeah. to the person that's interviewing them or being interviewed. Um, so it's yeah. quite an eerie effect. Yeah, he's making eye con- he's making eye contact
0: with the interviewer, yeah. Who is, or the interviewee yeah. who is then making eye contact <laughs> with with the viewer. Yeah, you know, and yeah. so, um, and he. Um, has quite a nose for um the unusual stories the interesting stories the first oh, yeah. person is full of and, and he's, he's somewhat
1: obsessed, obsessed with death <laughs> yes that's, that's and, true. like he's got his little pet cemetery one that he did and, yeah. and uh and uh mr death as well uh true yes but, uh, uh, he, he he's interested in in people's response to death and and i guess that whole sort of sense of the ritual around it and and the taboo that is there with it what interests me That's- with Morris mm-hmm. is that um, as a documentarian, um, and I mean I watch a bit of documentary. I wouldn't say I, I focus on it, but um, more so than any other documentary maker, I think, and and I include Werner Herzog in this, who I really love as well, um, and and the two of them have quite close relationship or have had. Um, he has a really cinematic quality. Um, which mm. you don't often find documentary Documentary is often and, and good documentary is often the kind that's really kind of quite raw matter of fact the stuff going on and and, and they might sit back and things, but Well Frederick
0: like, Wiseman, who's yeah. um Boxing gym is playing it this year and um those uh people who saw La Dance last year, it's yeah. very in the similar. It's it's quite the um sort of circle of cinema verite yeah. that um the documentarian tries to interfere as little as possible, possible and observe, where all Errol Morris does is interview and interfere yeah. and even when um and increasingly so in his films where, you know, uh, Fast Sheep and Out of Control and Mr. Death yeah. and Standard Operating Procedure all rely on these recreations and yeah, very yeah. cinematic ones I mean it's Oliver Stone cinematographer on a lot well, of those even films one of the
1: one of the, one of the most um, interesting things I thought he did with uh, Standard Octave Procedure when I read the credit um, actually I, I noticed it when I was watching it I hadn't sort of read it pre I thought the sound design in this is really odd the scoring it almost seems completely out of place and then later on I read that it was Danny Elfman, Right. Who people, before, yeah. who people might know works regularly with um, Tim Burton he, he has that really kind of quirky cinema style um, scoring for things philip um,
0: glass is another frequent collaborator who's yeah. you know, of course scored everything from truman show to the outliers yeah, yeah. you know. um,
1: which is really um idiotic, a lot of kind of sound but very cinematic and not something you would normally associate with documentary and particularly for a documentary about the photos uh, from Abu Ghraib of the uh, <laughs> torture and death um, yeah. that, that led to the imprisonment of those soldiers, uh, it just seems odd, and it and and should jar, but. He makes
0: something kind of fascinating out of it. Well, there's a whole side to him. I don't know if you follow him on Twitter or his New York yeah, Times do, but columns, but there is this he whole... He never um, responds to people no, who doesn't he, know. He, he <laughs> doesn't. <laughs> we should talk about that sometime, because you, you ask lots of celebrities questions on Twitter. I'm always fascinated by that. Um, but um, he, um, he has this whole philosophical bent to it, and a lot of standard operating procedure was as much about Photography and the image and what the image can say, as um, as it was about Abu Ghraib, and I think yeah. that's one of the reasons that film um, didn't wasn't received as well as some of his films is that it came in a context where there had been so many documentaries <laughs> about Iraq, yeah. and it was perceived and and the resultant fallout and <clears throat> um, and the war on terror and what have you, um, and he was using that as a jumping off point for this philosophical discourse all of which sounds really tedious so i should make a point of saying that tabloid sounds just like heaps of fun yeah yeah yeah, it does um i think it is really the film for people who if they don't think they like documentaries or have a preset vision of what a documentary is go see tabloid and i think it will change
1: your mind Aaron morris is very even-handed in that he doesn't sort of yeah, he just lets people kind of dig their own graves to a degree. Well, there's no narration in his films, no. and
0: it's only um, it's become increasingly more so. But um, that he'll let his um, voice even be heard is mm. just um, you know an off-camera question, mm. and um, and uh, if anything, I think that almost makes it more even-handed because yeah. you're hearing that and you're hearing the response in a very um, I mean, there's a great moment um you talked about his obsession of death there's a great moment in uh first person where he asks a woman who happened to date multiple serial killers oh, yeah. like what's your thing about serial killers and she's like that's a lame question you know yeah, and, yeah, yeah. and um it is about presenting unorthodox and sometimes uncomfortable viewpoints yeah, yeah and uh letting them speak for themselves and speak directly to you that you don't get to hear that you wouldn't and then letting you about.
1: form your response to that yeah, and rather that's, than
0: sort of manufacturing a response for you. Well, Mr. Death's a great one for yeah, that. Yeah. Because, um, you know, it's um, for those who don't know, Mr. Death's about... Um, Fred Lichter. Fred Lichter who um, manufactured uh, equipment to facilitate uh, the death penalty in the States. And so that's dark enough. But yeah. then along, uh, along the way, somebody decides that because he's an expert on executions, um, he should be dragged over to the concentration camps yes. to help prove that the Holocaust didn't really happen. Yes.
1: And... Yeah. <laughs> and and you can imagine... And he becomes a full-on Holocaust denier and travels saying that he's got the evidence. He's been there, he's seen the evidence. And Errol Morris came under quite a
0: bit of fire for that film because he didn't go on camera saying, by the way, right. the Holocaust this actually happened. happened. Um, and, I mean, if you read the interviews and contextual stuff around that, he's like you can watch the film and see the guys. that like he's yeah. he's barely qualified <laughs> you know, um, you, he, know but, yeah. you go pounding on 60 year old concrete and contaminating it and doing dubious chemical tests and then making broad pronouncements but, on the basis of that, yeah. that's not science yeah. and, and I think Errol Morris has gotten in trouble a couple times over the years for overestimating the intelligence of the room uh, <laughs> and so that that would be just one case of that
1: well uh thanks for joining us on this uh the first edition of uh what's firming up to be known as best worth podcast uh yep yeah, we've gone over some of the big names that are coming up at the festival but uh we're gonna look ahead we've uh, actually getting... only got halfway through
0: really haven't we yeah we're just getting <laughs> warmed up so uh come a, come back and join us for the next round and uh Let's see. You'll hear about westerns. You'll hear about classics. You'll hear about um, record power. Yep, and and
1: maybe a few bits and pieces that you you wouldn't come across by yourself.
0: Because we're here for you. We are. Take care, and we'll see you soon on Best Worst Podcast.
1: Like the best and the worst.